last year, Shainu and I were given uh, one of the best gifts ever. We were given sort of the trip of a lifetime. We got to spend a week in Israel. Shainu and I, since our first year of marriage, had this desire, both of us separately, to go to Israel. We just thought it would be a great trip to be able to go and see. And we had sort of joked back and forth to one another that for our fifth wedding anniversary, in our fifth year, we'd go to Israel. I'm a pastor, so there's no way that was ever going to happen. We were never going to be able to afford it. But what do you know, in our fifth year, out of the blue, we were approached by this interfaith organization, this group of pastors and rabbis, and they offered us this incredible discount for less than the price of one person. Both of us got to go, airfare, food, hotels, accommodations, everything included. It was unbelievable. Right? And, and we just joked back and forth to one another that how good was God that we had just sort of whispered this to him and he made it happen. So if the Lord is listening, I'd like to go to Tahiti next year. Um, right? So we get there and it was just an unbelievable trip. One of those weeks that, you know, I think even when we're old and gray, we will not forget. We, we went with this group that was very well off. And so we stayed at the finest hotels, ate the finest food, went to the fanciest restaurants. And all of that was just the side benefits. On top of that, the, the main reason we got to go was we got to visit all these religious and holy and sacred sites. All these things that we had read about in the scriptures, we got to walk those lands and see those things with our own eyes. Uh, the trip was unbelievable with many highlights. But hands down, without question, my favorite part of the whole trip was going to see the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, right? I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Maybe if you remember, uh, you see those images of faithful Jews bowing and praying before the, the Weeping Wall or the Western Wall. It's this ancient wall on the western side of the Temple Mount, where the Jewish temple in Jerusalem would have been. The Wailing Wall is this western wall. It's all that remains. The temple is gone. Nothing's left except this ancient wall on the western side. It wasn't even directly connected to the temple. It was sort of on the surrounding of the Temple Mount. It was sort of this retaining wall that held up the Temple Mount. That site is the most sacred site, the most holiest place on earth for millions and millions of people. Daily, thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the world stream to this one spot. It was there, if you've read through the scriptures, that the Holy of Holies, just feet beyond that western wall, was right there. It's now the Dome of the Rock, the great Muslim mosque. And so you can feel the, the sorrow that faithful Jews feel when they approach this place and what was once the Holy of Holies, the place where God literally came down and his glory kissed that spot of dirt on that ground, is right there. And so Jews hold that place with great reverence, with great awe. Thousands stream to that place. If, if you go there, the, the men are to the left, the women are to the right. You go there and, and you'll just see Jews and, and all kinds of people coming. Some giving God thanks for, for his blessings in their life. Many weeping and wailing by that wall as they are heartbroken over the destruction of the temple, that the, the place that they saw God and their people had seen God is no more. And they pray for Jerusalem to be restored and the temple to be restored. 
If you go there, you'll find shards of paper, rolls of paper, as people have written prayers from all over the world, sent it with loved ones, and these pieces of paper are inserted into the cracks and crevices of the Western Wall, because this is the holiest place on earth. God had never been anywhere on the earth like he was in that spot. He literally had touched down there. Jews to this day feel that to pray at the Western Wall, this is a quote, it is as if one has prayed before the throne of glory because the gate of heaven is situated there and it's open to hear prayer. It's, it's unbelievable. And I have to tell you, it was my favorite moment because it was an incredibly moving moment to stand there, right? I'm standing there and, and I, I close my eyes, I begin to pray, and I literally reach out my hand and I touch the wall. And this stream of thoughts and prayers begin to come into my mind as I'm thinking of the story of this temple. Literally just beyond where my hand was touching, God's glory had come down and touched. Just beyond where my hand was touching, Solomon had built this great temple. Just beyond where my hand touched, Jesus had climbed up the steps to that temple. The ground I was standing on, Jesus had literally walked on to get to this great temple. And yet, amidst all the thoughts that were sort of swirling in my head, here was the most pronounced one. Here was the one that was sort of silencing all the other thoughts. Here's the one that trumped every other thought. I stood there and I thought to myself, I don't need to be here. This is not my temple. The one thought that came above every other thought was, I don't have to be here because this is not my temple. As incredible and moving as that experience was, nothing in me felt like I needed to get back here and tell all of you as quickly as I could, Book a ticket to Israel, make a pilgrimage, and you got to go to the Western Wall. Now, I have no issues with any of you going to Israel. You should. But quite the opposite was the sentiment that I felt. In fact, when I was there, the only thing that I could think of is no one here needs to go there. And in fact, 525 Welsh Road is as holy a spot of ground as where I stood. Roosevelt Boulevard, Bustleton Avenue are as holy sites as the place I was standing. And I'm telling you, Jesus walked there. The temple was built there. The holy of holies stood there. So what I want to do today is walk you through why I felt that and why the scriptures want you to hear that. Okay? We'll pray and hopefully that'll make sense in a moment. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would give us enough grace to see God. We have our own agendas as we come to the word, but I pray that today you would help us to pause long enough to know that this word was given to reveal to us who God is. And please help us to leave here with a better understanding of the Lord and a better appreciation for what he has done and a better understanding of all that is ours in him. Open your word to us. Open our hearts to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start in Genesis. I know we're in Exodus 26, but today I want to start in Genesis. 
I just want to give you a preview. By the time the end of this sermon rolls around, we will be in Revelation. So we're literally going from the first book to the last book. We've got lots of ground to cover. We'll start with Genesis 2, and I'm going to read for you verses 8 to 14. You can just hear it. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of, gar of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. And where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, let's talk about the Garden of Eden for one second. In the beginning, we know that God makes everything out of nothing. Theologians call it ex nihilo, the idea that out of nothing, God creates everything. And in chapter 1, you're given this scene of God making everything. The sun and the moon and the stars and the sky, the earth and the land and the sea, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the land, God makes it all. And chapter 1 is sort of this panoramic view of all of creation. Chapter 2 of Genesis zooms in a bit and gives you some more flavor, some more color, some more detail, and gives you some more detail, particularly as it relates to the creation of the man and the woman and the space in which they would dwell. It gives you some more detail into the place where this man and woman would dwell, and that place where they would dwell was called Eden. If you've read this portion of the Bible before, if you've read chapters 1 and 2, you know that Eden was perfect, literally perfect. This plush garden with this buffet of food for the man and woman to enjoy, that which was pleasurable, the text says, to the eyes, good for food, it was this buffet for them to enjoy at this time, there's no sin. So Adam and Eve, this husband and wife, are constantly in love with one another. They've never had a fight, never had a disagreement, never had an argument. There's no clothes yet. They're running around naked. Like I said, this is perfect, right? Chinese going to yell at me for that one. Um, it's just this unbelievable scene. Everything is right. And best of all, of everything that is good in that place, here's the one that is greatest of all. God is literally walking around with them. God is dwelling with them. There's no sin yet, so there's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no separation from God. God and man dwell together. It's, it's this place, Eden is, where heaven and earth literally come together and meet. The dwelling of God is in heaven, and yet to be with man, God dwells on the earth. The dwelling of God is with man, and the dwelling of man is with God. And here's what that means. If God is dwelling in Eden, what that means is that Eden is sort of this temple palace kind of deal. Hear that again. If God is dwelling in Eden, Eden is this temple palace kind of thing. Because what is a temple? A temple is a place where a God, a divinity, a divine being dwells. What's a palace? 
A palace is a place where a king dwells. And so since the Lord is both God and king, Eden is much more than just a garden for Adam and Eve to roam around in. Eden is God's temple palace. It's the place where he dwells. And the scriptures hint that Eden is more than just a garden for Adam and Eve, but that it's actually a a temple palace for the Lord. Even the name Eden. Eden means a place of luxury, a place of pleasure. And there's this hint of royalty to it, which is why when the first translators were translating Eden into the Greek, they used the word paradisos. And you can hear it from there. It's the word from which we get paradise. That's what Eden was. And even in the description I read for you, you hear that there's good gold in that land and fine jewels and and precious stones and the kind of spices that's used for incense. And when you begin to put all that together and you see there's gold in this place and precious jewels and stones and incense, you begin to see this is more than a garden. This is a temple and a palace. It's where God and the Lord, the King, dwells. When the scriptures speak of Eden, when it speaks of creation, it speaks of it as if God is constructing this building with four corners as though he's making a palace on earth that reflects his palace, his dwelling place, his home in heaven. So here's what I want you to hear. Eden is a bunch of things. It's a temple where God dwells. It's a palace where the king of the universe dwells. It's the place where God and man dwells together. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. This is what Eden is. And then you get to Exodus, I mean Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman who was made and put in God's temple palace sin against God. They rebel against God and you have what the scriptures call the fall. And after the fall happens, God kicks the man and the woman out of Eden and places the man and the woman and the whole created order under a curse. And so now rather than dwelling with God, man is now thrust out into the cursed world under a curse away from God. And the dwelling of God is no longer with man and the dwelling of man is no longer with God. And in any other story, that's where the story should end. And yet you know, when we're in Genesis 3, we're three pages in. In this book, that's just where the story begins. Because God is a gracious God. And though the man and the woman should be kicked out and done, that's it. From that moment on, God begins this mission. This mission to restore man. To again somehow bring the dwelling of God and the dwelling of man together. To somehow recover Eden and restore paradise. Paradise had fallen. Paradise was lost. And from that moment on, God begins this mission to recover paradise. To restore Eden. To make it again so that the dwelling of God and man are together. You with me? Okay. So then let's look forward together. Now we're in Exodus 26. Adam and Eve, as the story continues, has lots of babies. They have lots of sons and lots of daughters. And these sons of Adam and these daughters of Eve become the people of Israel. And throughout the book of Exodus, we've watched these sons and daughters, the people of Israel, rescued out of slavery in Egypt, brought into covenant with God, 
And then last week we saw in chapter 25, God announces to this people that he is going to come to dwell among them. Now remember, Moses is the one who's written all five of these first books. And so your ears should immediately perk up because the last time you've heard that kind of language, the dwelling of God with man was in Eden. And so now God is announcing, I'm coming to dwell among you. And so immediately your mind is beginning to think that mission is ongoing. God is on mission to restore Eden, to recover paradise. And so God says, I'm coming to dwell among you. And that raises the first of several questions that we'll tackle throughout this series. The first question is, if God is coming, we want to answer this week, where is he going to live? If God's going to come and dwell among this people, where is he going to live? And Exodus 26 gives you the answer. The people, Moses is supposed to lead the people in building a house for God. And this house will be called a tabernacle. What's a tabernacle? Basically, a tabernacle is just a tent. The people dwell in tents, and so God is going to dwell in a tent at the center of all the other tents. All their tents are going to face his tent in the middle. And you consider the humility of this God, who the heavens cannot hold, who's now going to dwell in a tent because his people dwell in a tent. Only it's no ordinary tent. As you heard Binu read in Exodus 26, you heard the detail in which God prescribes this house for him must be built. Just, just hear the first few verses again. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You should make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The lengths of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. That's two verses in. For 35 more verses, you get pinpoint detail into how long everything's supposed to be, what fabric everything's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be put together, what this whole thing is supposed to look like. God does not leave anything to chance or, or even to their creativity about how this tabernacle, how this house for him, how this dwelling, this palace for him is supposed to look. God gives every detail about how the tabernacle is to be constructed. Moses is told exactly how this house is to be built. And here's the thing. Moses is not just told how to build it. Moses is shown how it's supposed to look. Moses is not just told. He's shown how it's supposed to look. Listen to verse 40 of chapter 25, one verse before our chapter. And, and God says, And see that you make them, that's the tabernacle and all its furniture, after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Here's the thing. Moses is not just getting from God a blueprint with instructions on how he's to make this thing. Moses, if you remember, when we looked at chapter 24, if you remember, Moses climbs up the mountain and there's this thick cloud of God's fire and glory. And Moses sort of goes and disappears. And the people don't see him for 40 days and 40 nights. And he disappears into this cloud of God's presence. And there, what you learn is that Moses sees, is given a vision of God's heavenly dwelling. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is allowed to see what God's dwelling in heaven looks like so that he can reproduce that dwelling on the earth. 
What the tabernacle is supposed to be is a replica, a mini model of God's dwelling in heaven. Commentators say that this word pattern that's used here, when God says, make it after the pattern which you are being shown, almost exclusively refers to an imitation of something that already exists in reality. So when he's patterning the tabernacle after what he's being shown, what he's doing is making on earth what he saw when he was in the cloud in the heavens. What he's doing is modeling the tabernacle after God's dwelling in the heavens. And the scriptures affirm this. In fact, in Hebrews, when the writer of the New Testament is looking back on the tabernacle, he says of the tabernacle, hear this from Hebrews 8 verse 5, they, that's the tabernacle, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Do you hear what he said? That the, the tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. When you walked into the tabernacle, you were supposed to be symbolizing, remembering God's dwelling in heaven. That's why, for example, God tells them, listen, in chapter 26, make sure that you sow cherubim, which was just a name for one kind of angel, into the fabric. Why? Because there's cherubim all around God's dwelling place. In fact, when you get to the Ark of the Covenant, this piece of furniture we'll look at next week, it was in what was called the most holy place. The tabernacle was set up so that you had this outer courtyard where everyone could go. You had this inner place called the holy place, which some could go. You had the most holy place where one priest once a year could barely go. And in that most holy place was this Ark of the Covenant, and it was called the throne of God because God was coming to dwell. This was his palace. This was his temple. And what do you know? On the Ark is fashioned two golden cherubim sort of guarding the throne just like the cherubim guard the throne in heaven. There's all kinds of details in chapter 26 that's supposed to get you to realize this is like God who's coming down from heaven to live on earth, bringing his home from heaven onto the earth. And so this tabernacle that you read of with all its details and all its material and all its instructions is patterned after God's dwelling in heaven and the tabernacle was this temple palace where God dwelt among man. It's the place where heaven and earth met just like Eden. Just like Eden. So that when you see the tabernacle, you begin to see this is another step in God's mission to restore paradise, to recover Eden. In fact, there's stuff about the tabernacle that's supposed to even remind you of Eden. For example, into the Holy of Holies, the entrance of the Holy of Holies is guarded by cherubim. It's sewn into the veil. Why? Because when the man and the woman were kicked out of the garden, God set up two cherubim to guard the entrance so that man could never return by himself into Eden again. And just like man couldn't get past the cherubim to get into Eden, so the Holy of Holies is guarded with cherubim. In the tabernacle, right in the middle, you find this lampstand. What's, what's peculiar about that? Well, it's the way the lampstand is constructed. It's 
as you read it in, in next week, we'll see, the lampstand is supposed to be made with branches, with blossoms, with buds, so that the whole lampstand looks like a tree. So in the middle of this dwelling where God dwells, in this temple palace, is a tree. And wouldn't you know, isn't that tree quite significant in God's temple palace in Eden? Some of the same stones you heard surrounding the rivers of Eden, gold and onyx, are again repeated when the tabernacle is being built. And you're supposed to get, God is on a mission to restore man, to bring again the dwelling place of God and man together, to recover Eden, to restore paradise. God is taking another step at making everything right again. You with me? Okay, then let's go forward together. Let's look forward together. For many years, then, you have this tabernacle, and it's this portable temple palace. If you remember, the people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness. They're nomads. And so when they get up and go to another place, they break down the tabernacle, take it with them, set it up in the new place. Its rods, its curtains, its poles were designed so that it could be quickly taken down and quickly put up again. And so wherever they go, the tabernacle goes with them. And you find for years, the cloud of God's glory and presence follows the people or leads the people and this tabernacle. But as you get into the story, as you get past Exodus 26, you realize that the people of Israel come to a place where they're no longer nomads. They're, they're not wandering anymore. Moses' successor, this man named Joshua, leads them into Canaan. They occupy the land. They build homes. They raise families. They settle down. And now everything's permanent. Now they're established. Now they're a nation. And one day, one of their kings, a man named David, is sitting on the throne, and he has this thought grip his heart. It's from 1 Chronicles 17.1. You can just hear it. He says, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. David's sitting in his fine palace with gold and jewels and precious wood and stones all around him. And he goes, how is it that I'm living in this house of gold and stone and fine wood, and yet Yahweh, the true king of Israel, is still dwelling in a tent? How is that right? And so it's on his heart now to, to not have Yahweh live anymore in a tent, but to build for him a house. But God is a gracious God, and God will never be won up by his people. God says to David, listen, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Just for the thought, I'm going to build you a house, and your line will continue forever, and your seed will be on the throne for all times. A prophecy about the great king to come from David's line, Jesus Christ, who would sit on the throne forever. And God says, you know what? I'll let your son who follows you on the throne build me a house. And that's exactly what happens. This son of David named Solomon comes to power and Solomon builds a temple for the Lord. And, and what do you know? It's exactly like the tabernacle. Everything's the same, only it's doubled in size. It's two times as big and rather than curtains, they're stone. And everything is constructed in just the same way. The tabernacle is sort of the shadow towards the temple. And the temple is sort of like the iPhone 4S of the tabernacle. It's the, it's the tabernacle with all the bells and whistles. It's the souped up version, right? And so now you've got the temple and it's the same things again. 
God's glory comes down there. He literally dwells there. There's the Holy of Holies. In fact, at the dedication of this temple, Solomon finishes praying, and God's glory so fills the temple, no one can even go in. It's so blinding and brilliant, the priest can't even get in because God comes down to this temple. It's just like the tabernacle, only rather than being portable and temporary, this one is permanent and fixed. And this temple, hear this, becomes the center for the people of God. This temple becomes the center of their identity. This this temple becomes the center of their life, the center of their worship. Everything that a Jew would need to be right with God was located at this temple. If you have Muslim friends, you know that Muslims in their faith are required at least once in their life to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, the holy city. Because that is the spot of earth that is most sacred to them. Far more so, every Jew was required to stream in his lifetime towards the temple. The temple was where God dwelt. The temple was where you went to meet with God. The temple was where your sins were taken care of because you offered sacrifices to God. You couldn't just offer sacrifices out in the countryside. You had to come to where God was, to his temple. The temple was the place where a priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies where God was on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice for all the people. The temple was where God was. It was the place where heaven and earth met. It was God's temple palace. It it was no small thing. I mean, think about it. Imagine there was a place on earth where God had a physical address and you could go there. Right, we live in 2011. Imagine there was a place on the earth where you could book a ticket and you could go to God's address because God was going to be there. That's what the temple was for these people. It was the center of everything. It was where you met God. It was where heaven and earth met. It was God's temple, God's palace. You with me? Okay, let's look forward together. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and Jesus starts saying the craziest things. They wouldn't sound crazy to you. To the people who first heard him, they sounded insane. Jesus starts saying these things that that made everyone sort of cringe, that made everyone very uncomfortable. For example, Jesus is one time sitting with this woman at a well in Samaria. And Jesus was a Jew. The woman was a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans in that day did not get along. This is Eagles fans, Redskins fans, right? And they're coming together. They could be looking at the same thing, but they're going to see it in two very different ways. And so the Jews and the Samaritans were looking at the same God, and they both knew God needed to be worshipped, but they saw it very differently. And one of their major arguments and disagreements was, where did God need to be worshipped? The Samaritans had a mountain that they thought God should be worshipped at. The Jews, of course, knew you went to Jerusalem to where the temple was. And so the woman tells Jesus, listen, I know we have some disagreements. You think it's at one place. I think it's at another place. And listen to what Jesus says to the woman. Jesus says, woman, believe me. This is John 4. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father For the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I want you to hear that again. Jesus says, believe me, 
The hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now again, you've got to understand the setting and the background to understand how crazy that sounded. Everyone knew where you went to worship God. Everyone knew the holiest place on the planet. Everyone knew the most sacred spot of ground on the earth. Everyone knew that if you wanted to meet with God, you went to the temple. And now Jesus was hinting that the temple was no longer essential. That the temple was no longer central. That the temple was no longer the place where heaven and earth met where God dwelt, or where you went to meet with God. Now, before you think that Jesus just dismissed the temple or had a bad opinion of the temple or was against the temple, it wasn't. God was the one who ordered the building of the temple. Jesus had a fond connection to the temple. The temple played a big part in Jesus' life. If you read the Gospels, you know that 40 days after Jesus is born, where is he brought? To the temple to be circumcised. And then the scriptures tell us his parents, because they were faithful every year as a boy, brought him yearly on the Passover to the temple. He went when he was one and two and three and four and five, all the way. So much so that when he's a 12-year-old boy, the Gospel of Luke gives you this story where Mary and Joseph bring with a caravan of their neighbors and friends Jesus, their son, to the temple. They assume that he's with the whole party. They take a day's journey away, and then you could picture the scene. Joseph turns to Mary and says, hey, where's Jesus? And she goes, I don't know. I thought he was with you. And at that point, Luke tells us they start this frenzy. Before this service today, we were setting up. I kid you not, for three minutes, I didn't know where Hannah was, right? I, I thought she was with Shainu, so I ran to Shainu and said, where's Hannah? She said, I thought she was with you. And you can feel, three minutes, the panic. She was in this side room. I got her, and I held her so tightly. She was like, Dad, what's, what, what, what are you doing, right? The, the scriptures say these guys went a day's journey. So they, they travel one day. They take a day's journey back. Then they search Jerusalem for three days. Five days later, they find a 12-year-old Jesus, and they go, Son, why did you treat us this way? And what, do you, what does Jesus say? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus had a fond connection to the temple. Jesus knew this is where God dwelt. And yet that same Jesus is now saying, it's not going to be in Jerusalem that you worship God, that you meet with God, that you go to God, that you get to God, that you get right with God. Jesus is changing the focus and locus and center of where you went to meet and get right with God. Or another time, Jesus' rivals are asking him, what sign is he going to show in order to show that he has the power, the right, the authority to say the things he said and do the things he did and make the claims that he made. And Jesus gives this one statement. It's in John 2. Listen to it. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. I told you, I went to Jerusalem. There is no more temple there. There's just a, a wall that wasn't even directly touching the temple. The temple's been gone for thousands of years, and yet that retaining wall that just held up the dirt for the temple, 
is the most sacred site for millions of people. If you threaten to destroy that war, wall today, I'm not exaggerating, you would be on the brink of perhaps world war. So you can imagine what a devastating sentence it was for the religious leaders to hear Jesus say to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up again. That shocked them. That rocked them. So much so that the Gospels tell us that when Jesus was put on trial to be killed, his adversaries brought up this sentence that he said as one of their charges against him. One of the people came and said, I heard him say that he was going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days. So much so they didn't forget it years later so that when he's dying on the cross, onlookers passed by and mocked him saying, you said you were going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days and now you can't even save yourself. And the Gospel of John tells us, of course, Jesus didn't mean that he was going to destroy the temple. The Gospel of John tells us what Jesus was talking about was the destruction of his body and how it would be destroyed, but it would be raised back again in three days. And that's when it clicks. That's when the light bulbs go off and you get Jesus is changing the center. Jesus is changing the focus because Jesus is now the temple. Jesus is now the true tabernacle. Jesus is the fulfillment of what the tabernacle and the temple was about. If the temple was the 4S version of the tabernacle, Jesus is the 4 million Z. It's the final one. It's the last one. It's the right one. That's why when I was standing there with my hand to that wall, I realized I don't need to be here. And this is not my temple. Jesus is. You want to meet with God? Go to Jesus. You want to worship God? Go to Jesus. You want to get right with God? Go to Jesus. You want to go to the most sacred place on the planet? Sit exactly where you are and go to Jesus. You want to go to the holiest site on earth? Sit in your pew and go to Jesus. Because Jesus is where you meet God. Jesus is how you get right with God. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. God, heaven came down and dwelt among us in Jesus. Do you know that when John is speaking of Jesus coming, in John chapter 1, in verse 14, he says, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And you sort of miss it there. Do you know what the literal translation is? It's not he made his dwelling among us. The literal Greek is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And that's when you get it. The true tabernacle to which the tabernacle and temple was pointing is Jesus the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So that if you want to get to God now, you go through Jesus. God was on this mission to restore Eden, to recover paradise. And that mission climaxes in Jesus. The tabernacle was great. The temple was even better. And yet both, you could get close to God, but you couldn't get really close. Do you know with the tabernacle, most people stood at the outer court and never even made it into the tent. Some priests made it into the holy place. One priest made it into the most holy place once a year. 
You could go, but not all the way. And guarding the entry were these two cherubim, almost as if to say, if you're going to come in, there's got to be a sacrifice, there's got to be judgment, sin has to be struck down before you can come. In order for man to re-enter paradise, to get back into Eden, what has to happen? There's two cherubim standing there, and there's got to be a strike that comes down before man can ever get back to where God is. And Jesus is the one who takes the strike. If you're going to ever recover paradise, re-enter Eden, it's going to mean that Jesus is struck down and then opens the way for you to come in. You with me? We're almost done. Okay, then let's look forward together. Jesus is struck down. He rises again. He opens the way. He goes back into heaven and his disciples are huddled together in a room because Jesus told them, wait here. And now they're sitting there in a room waiting for what's next. And all of a sudden the room starts shaking. Wind starts blowing. This great sound. And what do you know? Just like there was fire that descended on the tabernacle, the glory of God. And just like there was fire that filled the temple, the glory of God. Now as they're sitting in this upper room... Tongues of fire fall down on all the disciples. And now the spirit of Jesus, he's gone in the flesh. His spirit fills these disciples. And the glory of God now fills them. So much so that now they're where God dwells. These disciples go from there and they plant churches. When I say that, they didn't build buildings. There were no first buildings. They plant churches and as the New Testament begins to progress, God begins to say this very strange thing that now it's in the church that God dwells. Hear this word from 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says, do you not know that you, and when it says you, it's in the plural, so you all. Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? There's a sense in which the Spirit dwells in us individually as believers, in every body. And then there's a sense in which God's Spirit dwells in His body, the church. Do you not know that you, Seven Mile Road, gathered together, are God's temple? You're the place where God dwells. You're the place where the Spirit of Jesus is. You're the place now where heaven and earth meet. You are the temple palace of the living God. So that now wherever God's people, the church, are gathered, God dwells there. Not in whatever building they gather. Whether the church gathers in a hut like in India or on an open field under a tree like in Africa or in a secret basement like in China or the Middle East or in a chapel like here or across the hall in a building at 525 Welsh Road, wherever the people of God gathers, God dwells there. You are the sanctuary, the temple palace, the dwelling, the tabernacle, the temple of God. That's why when you come to church... You're coming to the place where heaven and earth meet. You want to come to the most sacred place on the planet, the most holiest ground? You come here. You gather with these people. That's why Christians have no holy sites. We make no pilgrimages because we gather with God's people and God dwells there. You with me? Last one. Look forward with me then one more time. 
and hear where all of this is going. We started in Genesis where it began. We're going to end in Revelations to where it's all going. And in Revelation, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' friends and disciples, is given a look into the future and a vision of heaven and a day that's coming. And I want you to just hear. You can close your eyes if you want. Just hear what God has in store for you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of, the, of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. I want to read you one more passage, but hear this. Hear where the mission of God is going, because it's been accomplished in Revelation. Eden, all over again, you hear it, the river again, the tree of life again. Eden has been restored. Paradise has been recovered. God's mission has been accomplished. The mission, by the way, to which you are presently called. That's the mission, is to get as many people to get into paradise through Jesus who has been struck down for them. That's the mission God's on. That's the mission he's invited you into. And then here, this one last passage from Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then he says, and I saw no temple in the city. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God began in Eden. And then he's on this mission to restore paradise and he gives the tabernacle. And then he gives the temple. And then heaven and earth meet in Jesus. And the spirit of Jesus is given to all believers who gather as his church. And there's coming a day when there will be no more temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is the temple. Look forward with me. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the great story of the scriptures. The story should have been done in Genesis 3. We were kicked out. We did what was wrong. We get what we deserve. And yet, because you are a good God of grace, that story just begins. And from that moment on, you begin this mission in order to restore paradise, recover Eden, and make it so that the dwelling of God and man would again be one. We thank you for the shadow that the tabernacle and the temple were in showing us what you had intended. We thank you for Jesus, the fulfillment of both, and the climax of your mission who was struck down and opened the way for us to come to you. 
We thank you that though we cannot see him now and he has disappeared in the flesh, he has sent his spirit into each of us individually and corporately so that you now dwell here. And as we gather on Sunday mornings, we truly gather as the house of God, as the temple palace of the Lord, as the place where heaven and earth meet. And we do thank you that Jesus has promised that he will come again. And then there will be no more temple, for you will be our dwelling place. And the dwelling of God will be with man, and he will be our God, and we will be his people, and he will wipe away every tear, and there will be no more mourning, and pain will not be any more, and death will have passed away, for the old order of things is gone, and you will have made all things new. Truly, we look forward together. Amen.